1: Welcome into another edition of the hangtime podcast Seku Smith back home in Atlanta John Schumann in New Jersey off the road briefly here Shu for at least a few minutes playoff action continuing to roll along all over the place all around the league the Celtics and the Bucks are locked in, punching their tickets to the conference semifinals, the much-anticipated Eastern Conference semifinal matchup that we knew was a possibility. Um, and we'll dive in there later on in this show. But the Utah Jazz shoot kept their season alive with a huge win over Houston on their home court game five is Wednesday at eight o'clock Eastern on TNT. I don't even know, did you stay up and check that game out? Did you even, I mean, did you, did you do the notos as you were writing your Celtics bucks preview and, uh, and eyeball that game at all? I
0: got my Celtics bucks preview done by halftime of the (laughs) uh, Rockets jazz game. So I did go to bed at halftime knowing that I've got to cover a game tonight. But okay. I did wake up and then watch um, some of that second half this morning, and I mean it was just a huge second half for for Donovan Mitchell. He scored twenty five, and after halftime had three assists. After halftime, Rubio eight assists. After halftime, you know the the Jazz offense kind of woke up after um, really struggling through the first three games of the series, and. You know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, Houston still has two more games at home, obviously. They should certainly be able to take care of business in one of these next couple of games. But, you know, good on the Jazz for keeping their season alive, showing us that, you know, they do have the ability to beat Houston on any given night. Maybe it delays the inevitable in, in regard to a, a Houston Golden State series. But, you know, we knew that Utah was was, was tough. You know, as poorly as they played through the first three games, wasn't really them. You know,
1: I think this was more about uh, who they are. Right. Obviously, we got four game fives on tap tonight, You. We'll crank up with the one that you'll be at, next Sixers. Um, you've been at every game in that series. Uh, you'll be there tonight, obviously, 8 o'clock Eastern on TNT. This has turned into my, my favorite series in terms of just the drama and uh, all of the back and forth and shenanigans going on there. Sixers are up 3-1, got a chance to to finish this thing off. The game one loss was the Shocker, and, and they've kind of taken control since. How much of it is, in your eyes, is it just their superior talent kind of rearing its head? And how much of this is, I, I don't want to say shortcomings, but how much of this is the Nets not being the kind of Bunch that can withstand all of the outside forces that are going on in the series.
0: I mean, I don't think it's any of that. I I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's talent and size basically for me. I mean, it's not only, you know, the, the talent that the Sixers have and the, the, the fact that they can get big games from Tobias Harris, JJ Redick, Ben Simmons. Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid on any given night. They have five guys who can really, you know, be the best player on the floor at any point. Maybe not Redick, but obviously he had a big game in, in game three. Right. Um, Brooklyn was right there in, in game four. They had a seven point lead in the fourth quarter with less than six minutes to go. They missed some opportunities, missed a couple of free throws. Joe Harris missed a wide open three. I think that would have put up put them up nine with less than with maybe five minutes to go or so. And that's a story. You know, Joe Harris hasn't made a three in three games. It's the first time that's happened in more than two years. And he's got some good looks. And so, I mean, credit Philadelphia. I mean, like even, you know, uh, Reddick's go ahead three before Joe Harris hit a a layup. That was off an offensive rebound. I mean, they've just killed the, the, the nets on the glass. Mike Scott's Go ahead. Three came when they, you know, uh, the Nets were forced to front Embiid and and sort of they got a deflection, but uh, the deflection came from Mike Scott's defender who was helping on the uh, in the post uh, because Embiid, you know, they need basically needed to double Embiid, and so he lost the ball, but then got it to Mike Scott who was wide open because they doubled him, and so it's 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 really about that matchup, really advantage. Like Embiid is. As, as well as the Sixers played in game three without him. And beat is the matchup advantage that every team wants, you know, once he steps on the floor. And he's done a really nice job of, of not settling from the perimeter as much as he did in game one. Um, he'll, you'll see him a lot catch the ball on the perimeter, think about shooting, but then say, no, I'm going to back my man down and get into the paint. And either score or, you know, force a double team where he can find an open, open teammate. So I don't think that Philadelphia quite has it all together just yet. But I think, um, you know, their superior talent and size has been the difference. I don't necessarily think that the series definitely ends. Tuesday night in Philadelphia. I think the Nets have the ability to win any game, and I was at their practice Monday, and they seem to be in, in decent spirits. They seem to be past the frustration of Game Four, but you know the Sixers should be moving on to a uh, to a much
1: anticipated series with the with Toronto. The talent, sheer talent and size that that Philly brings would overwhelm a lot of teams, um, not just the Nets. Does the Nets getting just to this point in the fight they've put up? Does that validate them in the eyes of free agents? Do you think, and people around the league looking at them and, and examining what their status will be moving forward?
0: I mean, I, I think it should in a general sense, but I mean, every free agent is their own man, and they're going to make their own decisions. And and you know, some may what the what the Nets have done may appeal to some, and it it some may have their eyes set somewhere else so it doesn't really matter but yeah I think in a general sense it should be an appealing destination as far as the role players that they have the coaching staff that they have the front office that they have um heck that practice facility. I mean I was at that practice facility again I hadn't been there in a little while Mm -hmm. yesterday that thing is just it's freaking beautiful like i i was telling somebody there's like don't ever take for granted that you get to come to work i'm here to work every day and and living in new york i think is an appeal to a lot yeah. of people so i think um you know there's certainly a lot there to appeal to players around the league and i'm sure that you know you get a guy like jared dudley who you know putting aside his his antagonistic role in this series a guy who's a vet that other players we'll talk to as far as, hey, what was the experience like in Brooklyn? And he loves it, you know. And so I think that's a, a plus. You get you have a, a few veteran players there that came in this year and obviously played a role in helping this team get to the playoffs, but also have enjoyed their time there and and word word around the Uh, word will get around the league uh, in that regard. So I think they've, yeah, they've, they've done well for themselves and they're a a competitive group. They have a couple of advantages over the Sixers, especially in their sort of the quickness of their guards that can take advantage of the the Sixers. not so swift big men, and uh, and so there's still a possibility there. I think it's been fantastic to see Karis LeVert play as well as he has coming off of that injury uh, this year. I think that's that bodes well for this team. He is a he is a
1: cornerstone. Whether or not they get uh, free agents this summer, right? Moving over shoe to the Game Fives in the West. I was at two of the games between the Portland Trailblazers and Oklahoma City Thunder. I was somewhat critical of of the Thunder and Russell Westbrook following Game 3, even though they won the game. I just raised the question of what the ceiling might be for Russ during his Thunder tenure. And if that was enough, legacy-wise, to, to justify the way he's played, the way he's operated. He's been in the news, Obviously the last few days for stuff that to me really didn't rise to the level of, of worry, you know, player being a little nasty on the podium or, or being the way he was up there. Didn't, that's not something that's going to concern me long-term. You know, you get over that. What does concern me about the Thunder shoe is the third highest payroll in the league and no clear Avenue to improve this roster, be it organically from, you know, from your own player development program and the ability to go out and find, you know, the ideal pieces around Russ, like by Saturday. You know what I mean? <laughs> like there's I don't see the the escape hatch for the Thunder right now in terms of how you change the DNA of this team unless you change Fundamentally, the way Russ plays.
0: I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, we talked last week about them and the fact that I think when they were down 2 0 or 1 0, and the fact that they didn't have enough shooting around Westbrook and Paul George. But I was just thinking, well, you know, why can't Westbrook become a better shooter? Or why can't, why is he such a bad shooter himself? Like, he's basically uh, one of the worst jump shooters in the league. And like, why hasn't that improved? You know, he's been in the league a long time or why has it even gotten worse over the course of his career? And it'd be great to ask him about that, but he'll never, he would never answer that question. (laughs) You know, like, Hey, what's with your jump shot? Why, you know, how do you get better as a shooter? Like, because if he could shoot off the dribble, I mean, that's the ultimate weapon in this league is a, is a player who handles the ball and who shoots well off the dribble, that that becomes such a threat that everything opens up. You see it with Damian Lillard. I mean, his his ability, like, he is right behind Steph Curry is just the threat that he is off off the dribble and the threat that that becomes to a defensive team. Like, you have to respect that. Set a screen for me, and then I will draw two defenders, and then things open up from that. So... Why is it, you know, Westbrook is under contract for four more years at like 40 something million dollars a year. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, all right, get in the gym and figure out how you can become a respectable jump shooter so that. You know, this team, like, as much as we talk about, like, this, the offensive end of the floor is where this team needs to improve. You know, they they were a very good defensive team this year. At, at times, they were maybe the best defensive team in the league, or at least the best defensive team in the West. Like, I mean, offensive improvement may not be, may just be more about Westbrook getting, becoming a better shooter than putting better shooters around it.
1: Yeah. That's what I mean. One of the readers sent me an email, um, very upset saying that I had written it. Russ needs to cut and run. And I was like, "No, nowhere in the piece that I wrote did you see me even suggest slightly that he should abandon Oklahoma City. I did not write that. What I wrote was, is it time for everybody, Russ included, to re-examine how he's operated, you know, if if all you have to show for what's going on since KD left is four playoff games won. I'm curious to, for myself sure, to see if they continue to develop some of the other things that are going on around, around Russ, namely, you know, Steven Adams, who I, I appreciate what he brings, the force that he plays with and the fact that he's as reliable as he is. But if he's your third highest paid player, I'm fine and, with that. I'm right. And a, he he can, is a two way player. I'm fine with him. Yeah, being. But let's, let me finish. If he's your third Highest paid player, not by, not by virtue of your third best, but your third highest paid player. And you're going to have the kinds of salaries that they have with he and, and Paul George and Russ don't you almost have to have Grant or Ferguson turn into what Pascal Siakam has done and turned into for Toronto? Like, don't you have to have a guy who's already in your program far exceed whatever expectation people might have had for him in order for for you to have a, a top three like you have right now in Oklahoma City?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good point that maybe they need – They obviously, with, with what they're paying Westbrook, George, Adams, even Schroeder in there – yeah, um, they need to hit on a a the bottom end of their roster. They need somebody on the uh, the bottom end, meaning uh, in regards to salary. Yes. Um, they need somebody there to play above his pay grade. You're right. That's a, a, a great point. But I have no problem with what they're getting from Steven Adams and what they're paying Steven Adams. That dude is an impact player on both ends of the floor, a durable dude like – the guy seems to get banged up every game and is oh, and, and never and never leaves the game. You know, like he, he's <laughs> it's like oh, Stephen Adams is limping
1: again, and the, it doesn't matter. Like yeah, when, I'm not. I was knocking Steven Adams. I love yeah. what he brings. I just meant. I love Stephen Adams. Like yeah, he's my, yeah, he's the yeah. So their, their roster structure, the way it is, they have to have. And I was watching Ferguson and and Grant. And you're saying to yourself, how much ceiling do these two guys have in terms of what they could become as players? It's so difficult for...
0: They've both improved dramatically, yes. I think,
1: this year, too. Yes, they have. And it's and it's so difficult for you to put their improvement in a, in the proper context when they're being asked to play at a level that I don't know that either one of them is ready for right now at this stage. Like Because you need them to be even better than they are now yesterday in order for you to take advantage of the window. You know, Russ is 30, shoot. He's not yeah. young anymore. He's not, you know, we can't excuse away his mistakes or deficiencies at this stage of his career. That's what I find myself doing. There was a time when we would say, well, he's young. He's still got an opportunity to, you know, to develop his, you know, what kind of player he is. He's he's 30. He's a decade in. He is what he is. You know, he's not going to reinvent his game at this point. So it's almost incumbent upon the thunder to make sure somebody else on that roster that you're grooming for a bigger role potentially it exceeds whatever the profile is you might have for him. And I understand Andre Robertson is not healthy still. That makes it another huge difference, but they need another component. Like you got to have another player who changes your dynamic. If what you have now in your main core players, Schroeder included, that these guys are who and what they are largely at this stage of their career. Yeah.
0: I think maybe the only hope for somebody to, to take a big step forward is, is Hamadou Diallo. The guy obviously has uh, the raw Tools to be a impact player, just a matter of him getting healthy. I think he had surgery recently. Yeah. Um, if that's going to prevent him from having a healthy summer of uh, in the gym, you know, putting in work, and so you know, they have the twenty-first pick in the draft. You know, maybe they hit on that, but even if they hit on that, that's a rookie that's yeah. not necessarily going to make an impact next year. So it's tough. It's a tough situation. It's interesting, and I don't, I don't think the West is getting any worse next year. Even if if yeah. Kevin Durant leaves the Warriors, you know, the Lakers will be back you know the Clippers could be much improved you know Portland we, we see is is in a probably feeling like they're in a position of strength right now um mm. Sacramento's only gonna get better so it's it's
1: it's not like you know the window is gonna open up for them either no, it's it's going to be difficult, and you know, and being in Oklahoma City, I mean they were booing Sunday night you know as the frustration mounted in game four, and it was clear that Portland was the the more serious minded focused team going into that game, like the day before we we got a chance to see both teams, and Oklahoma City's nonchalance at their practice kind of struck me. Just that they didn't seem nearly as as business-minded and focused as Portland did. And I was expecting it. And Russ, I thought, you know, played a very strange, disengaged emotionally game that something that you wouldn't have expected in that setting for him. But the fans were voicing their frustrations, you know, sitting in the section I was in with, and I was sitting next to a bunch of scouts. We laughed early when we heard some of the moaning and groaning, but it got nasty later. And it was it got a little sideways where I thought, man, maybe there's maybe there's some angst about what's going on in, in Oklahoma City that doesn't get shared. You know, from that perspective, normally that you witness only by being in the building and engaging and, and the the mood and reaction of the fans as you're walking out of the building and in and, and around downtown there, you know, in, in the the arena while you're there. It's just there's more concern for the future than I realized that that people have down there because of the same things we're talking about. They, they see it shoe. It's not like they're in a bubble and don't see it. They know that there's some issues with that roster and with that team that if you get bounced three straight times in the in the playoffs. Have to be addressed. So it'll it'll be interesting to see if they if they get eliminated. I, I felt like between Portland and Oklahoma City in that series, losing, in in losing in in the manner that they potentially could in, in a you know four one that. Precipitate some things in the off season that may not have happened if they're on the other side of that, and and I thought that was the case for both these teams. There would be an, an urge to make significant changes, or at least seriously entertain making significant changes based on how you lose in this playoffs. I don't think that's the case. Obviously, when we stay in the West, you in the Spurs Nuggets series which is tied at 2-2, and that game's at 9.30 Eastern on NBA TV. I don't think that's the case for either of the Spurs or the Nuggets. This has been a, a fascinating series, and I, and I got a chance to be in San Antonio for one of the games when Derek White went ham and the Spurs won. This is interesting to me in that Mike Malone is going through the process of trying to hand out, like, merit badges in the midst of the series like he's having to figure out who who you boost who you have to take out of the lineup or out of the rotation for the sake of winning the series you can't you know it's not about trying to put some ointment on the the playoff skin of this roster as a you know as you might want to do if this is a team that had been in the playoffs consistently when it's a team that's making that first dip you know, for Jokic and Murray and a bunch of these guys, you almost have to be a little more pointed in how you approach it. And I thought Mike Malone did some of that after that loss in San Antonio. And now is going to be forced to make some decisions about that again, game by game, in order su- to survive the Spurs in this series.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I I have the sort of the same thoughts with Brooklyn as I'm watching that series. It's like, mm-hmm. does Kenny Atkinson know from game to game who he's getting a good game from, and I, I was thinking this as they approached the end of the, the end of the regular season when they were they obviously needed to win some games to get in, and it's like D'Angelo Russell can get hot at any point, but he can also shoot you out of a game, and he's he's sort of in this series, he's kind of struggled a little bit, uh, especially in first half. And Levert, you know, was just getting back from his injury and wasn't doing uh, as well as he has in the playoffs. And Dinwiddie, you know, can also, you know, take some tough shots. So I think it's, yeah, I think I see the comparison with Denver. Obviously, if Torrey Craig can give them... Five for seven from three point range, like you did being four. <laughs> right. That he, he's the obvious. Okay, we play this dude because he's he he's obviously uh, their best option in defending uh, the Spurs perimeter players on the other end of the floor. And so I, I think he is a key. Like if if he gives you offense, then that is is the key. That could be the, uh, the biggest key to the series because that guy is he is uh, he's their best option in defending either either White or DeRozan, whichever one you want to put him on. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, offense can, can be a struggle. You know, he's obviously not the offensive player that Will Barton is. And the same thing with like Jamal Murray, it's, it's a process. Like the dude's still young and he's still, um, you know, this is his 1st postseason series. He has the ability to obviously get hot as he did uh, at the end of game two. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, there's, you're going to have to be patient with him at at some times. And I think that's like going back to Brooklyn. That's the, I think Kenny Atkinson's one of the best thing about him this year is how patient he's been with Russell or Russell will have a bad game. And Atkinson, you know, just understands that, you know, it's going to come like, if i be patient with this guy, he's going to, he's going to win us a couple of games too. And I think that's the case with Jamal Murray. You got to just take the good with the bad and understand that it's still early in the process with him and that you're going to have some rough nights. He's also
1: going to get you Win you games with with uh, with a couple of uh, big quarters. Yeah, like he. I mean, yeah, he did. Obviously, did that in game two of the, of those four teams you that are on the other side of that bracket in the West from the inevitable, you know, Warriors Rockets matchup we think is coming. Um, Portland, you know, OKC, San Antonio, and Denver. Um, who do you give the nod to in terms of being the most likely to reach? the Western Conference Finals or that bunch, knowing what's left in both those series. It's hard not to pick Portland, right? Just how strong they've looked. They've obviously looked been
0: the strongest of those four teams mm-hmm. um, and the most consistent from game to game. I mean, credit to those guys. I mean, credit to Terry Stotts, credit to Lillard. We've, we've sung yeah. his praises quite a bit uh, on here over the last couple months. Um, McCollum and their ability to recover from what was an embarrassing sweep last year and have a, a strong regular season to just keep rolling through the Nurkic injury. Yeah, um, Aminu had a, a terrific game the other night. You yeah, know, they, yeah. They, you know, they need those kinds of games from their role players. You know, McCollum ha- has been very good, but he's, he's not going to have, he's not the most consistent score or efficient score because of the shots he takes. He's a, he's a in between, you know, sort of DeRozan-esque, you know, he takes those mid-range Right. Um, floater shots. That's going to come and go. Lillard is obviously more consistent, but they've been good enough. And, you know, I think when this bracket was set up, I was fascinated to see which one of these four teams, and we talked about it because they were all sort of flawed in a way, uh, which one of these four teams was going to make it to the conference finals. I'm still fascinated. I still don't know the answer to that. I think yeah, um, Portland is the favorite, but Denver mm-hmm. and the Spurs certainly will have an opportunity. So I, I'm still fascinated, like as, as, much as the, the Warriors, Uh, Rocket Series uh, or Potential Warriors Rocket Series, as much as we're anticipating that, and as much as it seems inevitable that the winner of that is going to get to the uh, get to the finals, I I still love to see sort of who has success leading up to that. And even in the East, like I'm still fascinated, you know, the next two series are obviously going to be awesome just as far as Two teams are going to go home really disappointed, and two teams are going to be one step closer to to being the the team that that gets to the finals.
1: Yeah, the last of those four games we mentioned, uh, you know, those game fives, Toronto in Orlando, seven o'clock Eastern on NBA TV. The Raptors know what's at stake, and Orlando has been maybe a bit more difficult an opponent than I think some people realize they'd be. But I feel like that game one shocker is what has put. Toronto in a, in a more heightened sense of existence, just understanding what they're going to be dealing with and, you know, potentially in the next round, they will have a monster on their hands um, to battle with obviously with Philadelphia, but Shu, do you, you look at the Raptors matchup and, and almost feel like once again, the victim of, of our wandering eye has been Kawhi Leonard. Um, <laughs> He's. I mean, he's been so good, like we know he can be, and and we don't. We still don't talk about. We still don't focus on him. I've been more intrigued watching Siakam than I have been anybody on that Toronto roster. But how big a deal is Kawhi playing at the level he's playing right now in terms of Toronto's hopes for what they can accomplish in this postseason?
0: He's been an offensive monster. I mean, the game two that he had, thirty seven points. He shot fifteen for twenty two. Like. That's ridiculous for a perimeter player like that's like Shaq like numbers, SLN, you know, Um, every time I watch him, it's like, oh, I kind of wish he would pass the ball more. I wish he was more of a playmaker. But if he's going to he's not going to if he's not going to miss a shot like (laughs) like he's become he's almost at James Harden level as regard in regard to being an isolation scorer. And then he's obviously a, a, a better defender. And, and speaking of defense, I think that's where the, the Raptors have really uh, improved or where they've really stepped up in the last few games is they've held uh, Orlando under a point per possession in each of the, the last three wins. So they have, like when you look at their roster, we've said it before, they, they have the ability to be a phenomenal defensive team. Yeah. When you talk about Green, Leonard, Siakam, Gasol, Ibaka, uh, even Lowry as a as a perimeter pest like they have the ability to to lock teams down now going into Philadelphia and having the Embiid matchup is different, you know, because now that's suddenly a guy that you may have to send a second defender to. And that obviously puts you in rotation and that can hurt you. But, you know, I, I think they are starting to find themselves uh, defensively. And I think that's a huge step. Like, I, I feel like throughout the regular season with all their, their, with their sort of lack of continuity with Lowry and Leonard missing so many games, um, and, and playing only 40 something games together. Right. Um, we never saw them like, say I never, there was never a point maybe other than like a, a half here or a quarter there when it's like, Oh, the Raptors are a defensive, like menace, right? Like, it, like there was never like a, a five game stretch or a seven game stretch where it's like, Oh, the Raptors are, could be the best def- best defensive team in the league when they turn it on. But I think maybe we're starting to see that now. And that, that's obviously, uh, Huge uh, going forward.
1: Yeah, I couldn't tell you how unhealthy my desire is to watch the Eastern Conference semifinal because <laughs> 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 I know I'm gonna be covering the West. I'm
0: um, um, yeah, I'm 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 excited. Like I I I will be at every Toronto Philadelphia game. Um, yeah. I'm hoping that the like. The second game of their the doubleheaders for that is not Houston, Golden State, no <laughs> offense to the other side of the bracket. Because yeah, like when you're covering a game, you obviously lose uh, or you, you don't it's harder to to to, to uh, watch the other games that happen that same night. Right. And even the following night you're catching up on sleep too. So but yeah, I'm ex- very excited for both Toronto, Philadelphia and uh Milwaukee, Boston, um, you know, it's the the team that we thought was going to be the best team in the East versus the team that is the best team in the East. And I think Boston sort of finding themselves a little bit in the first round makes it even a little bit
1: more intriguing than it already was. Let's go there now, you know, since that Eastern Conference semifinal is already set. And I, I read your preview already this on, on NBA.com. I agree with the pick, and I'll let you explain it. And, and and kind of let you tee off on on what you wrote and what you see, you know that that could transpire between these two teams.
0: They could go anyway. Like I'm not married to picking Bucks and Six, which I did in honor of ben, Brandon Jennings. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised to see the Celtics win. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the Bucks maybe win a little bit more comfortably. Mm. Um, because you just don't know, like. Uh, The Boston in that Indiana series obviously turned things up defensively Obviously, the the Pacers were not the uh, the best offensive team in the uh, playoffs. Maybe they were one of the worst. Yeah. Um, but the Celtics still sort of shut them down relative to how efficiently the Pacers scored in the regular season, even if you don't count the games they had with Victor Oladipo. Like compared to how efficiently efficiently the Pacers scored in their games without Oladipo, they scored They obviously they still were much worse offensively in that first round. I think Corford is, is is as good of a matchup for, for defending Giannis Antetokounmpo as you're going to find, um, you know, I don't know if there's a, um, a guy who can sort of hold his, hold his ground in the paint as well as Al Horford and, and be as sort of mobile against Antetokounmpo as Al Horford is at the same time, Antetokounmpo had a huge series against the Celtics last year. Um, it was just, there was nobody else that, that stepped up. Eric Bledsoe we know, uh, was not very good in that series. And I think Milwaukee just has more answers around him uh, this year. The Brogdon question is is out there. I think we're supposed to get an update in the next couple of days on Brogdon. Right. Uh, maybe he comes back mid-series. I think uh, Marcus Smart is less likely to return in this series.
1: I mean, he's got a much and he's got a much more to me complicated injury to come yeah. back from. Yeah. Um. I was talking with Tom Thibodeau about that last night uh, when we were on set. You know, in, in between some of the stuff we were doing, he and Rex Chapman and, and Casey Stern and I were talking about all the series, obviously, and, and where they stand. He was saying that the oblique is an injury that, you know, you talk about how different guys' bodies react different ways. Some of these injuries, like the oblique is one that you dread as a coach. He's like, because you're you're trying to get a guy back, he said. And it, it's one of those ones where all of the different things you have to do where you're oblique, because it, you know, could be an issue. Yeah, make I mean, it extremely difficult for a guy to, to get back to a full. Yeah, it's a core. I mean, it's in your core, yeah, it's right? A like, core, it's a core.
0: Yeah, it affects everything. Like it affects your ability to, to go forward, to go sideways, to right, you know, right, to jump. You know, so. But it'll be interesting to see what how Boston starts if they continue to start uh, Horford at Bane and and Baines together. You know that matches up Horford with Antetokounmpo at the four, but. If they play Horford at the five and play smaller with say Marcus Morris or even Hayward in there at the at a forward position, then you sort of force Brooke Lopez to venture outside the paint defensively and I think obviously a key to Milwaukee's defense is Lopez being able to hang near the basket, protect the rim and help rebound. And so that'll be the sort of an interesting the sort of first chess move to to see is what lineup configuration Boston goes with. Um, If they, even if they start Baines, how quickly do they go to Horford at five in order to sort of see if Lopez is willing to, to come outside the paint and defend, you know, a five man who can shoot. We saw it in the regular season. There was one game, the one game, the Celtics beat the Bucks in the regular season. The Bucks outscored them like 42 to 12 or something in the paint, but the Celtics won because they hit a Franchise record 24 three pointers. Horford was four for 11. The 11 threes that he took in that game were a career high by two. Like he's never taken, and other than that game, he's never taken more than nine threes in a game. And that's what Milwaukee does. Like they, because they want to keep Lopez near the basket, they're going to allow opposing centers to shoot. If you have a shooting five, he's going to get open threes against the Bucks. I mean, that's they. The Bucks allowed the most three pointers in NBA history in the regular season, and they still had the number one defense. It tells you sort of how their defense prioritizes protecting the protecting the rim and rebounding. So I think that that's sort of the the chess match on on that end of the floor. Um, and then if 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 you do play Horford at the five, what do you do on the other end of the floor? Do you have him still guard Ansu and now ask uh, Marcus Morris or Hayward or whatever to to guard Lopez and hope that he doesn't you know, isn't willing to sort of get dirty in the post and try to take advantage of of, of smaller defenders down there. I think that's sort of uh the start of, of of where things get interesting with these uh with these matchups.
1: Yeah. I kept reminding those guys of how important um Horford has been, is, was, whatever he always is, um, for Boston. And
0: He's, I think he's still, I, we've said, I've said it before, I think he's still the most important player on that team.
1: Yeah, I mean, just so critical in terms of his success, you know, kind of as a solo defender for as much as you can be against Giannis. is huge, you know, in that series. And uh, it was interesting having a coach like Tibbs who was there to either confirm or dispute some of the theories I, I had about what we might see you know, I, I don't know if, and, and this is another thing, Shuga, you tell me if you notice this about these playoff matchups. I was reminding these those guys last night, and not that they needed reminding, but just reiterating the point of how difficult it is in a playoff setting for these teams to get this, I mean, getting good quality shots in a playoff game. I don't know if people understand how difficult it is because of the the way teams defend in the playoffs. Even teams that aren't great defensive teams lock in in the playoffs in ways that you can't during the regular season because of the preparation for just that singular opponent is all you have to worry about. Portland, yeah. it struck me like that. This yeah. Clean shots in this bucks celtic series are going to be impossible. <laughs>
0: It'll be fun. Yeah. We see it in, in the Brooklyn Philly series. I keep going back to it cause that's the one I I've watched every minute, every second of, but you know, the the Nets are denying JJ Redick on the perimeter. They're top blocking him, as they say, you know, to prevent him from the sort of catch and shoot threes off of pin downs or even getting into dribble handoffs, which he which he likes to do. So right. it's it's been it's been really fun to watch Reddick's paths towards getting catches. Like he's basically had to he can't take his normal routes, right? So he's got to He's got to go inside the handoff or he's got to sort of run into the paint and then flare to what, whatever open space he can find on the perimeter as you know, mostly Joe Harris or, or Dinwiddie or even Levert was guarding him uh, in game four. I thought yeah. Levert did a really good job of him against him on game four. But yeah, it's fun to see, okay, our normal plays are taken away. Our normal actions are taken away. What's the alternate route to getting... Right space and it's all about you know creating an advantage where you you know draw two to a guy or you know put get a guy into space and and then get the defense moving and then finding an open shot from there it's been fun to watch yeah and, it, and basically every series the other one thing i'll go back to with buck celtics is that after horford the celtics next defender that they've played the most uh that they defended antetokounmpo most with both in last year's playoff series and in the regular season this year is semi ogleye who barely played didn't played like 30 yep. seconds in yep. the first round against the Pacers. Right. so It'll be interesting to see if they dust him off in order to get, you know, to play, to defend tacumpo for whatever, eight to 10 minutes per game. Don't be surprised if you see, you know, like you're out there and you're like, well, why is Semi Ojale in the game ball? Well, because they feel like he's he's their next capable uh, tacumpo defender.
1: Yeah. I'm curious too how Splash Mountain affects th- that series, you know, in terms of having a guy with that size who can impact games, you know, from an offensive standpoint, and then I think he, listen, nobody has been more critical of Brook Lopez than I have over the course of his career as a rebounder and shot blocker and shot alterer. If that's how many
0: shots did he block in Game Four against uh, yeah.
1: that's Detroit? That's what I'm saying. And like six I, or seven or something. Yeah, like. I mean, and that's always been my knock on him. Shoe is that at his size with his skill set, he should be far more effective in both effective in both areas he becomes critical to me in terms of the length that the bucks can throw at you uh, if he's effective in this series that that could be a big time x factor for the bucks if if he plays well and is effective because I don't what what's your counter if you're Boston for Lopez
0: the boston's just got to make shots i I'll, I'll, i think I, I brought this up in the preview is mm-hmm. the bucks are going to outscore the celtics in the paint and at the free throw line right um the bucks we know defend the paint well they score in the paint well the celtics do not get to the free throw line yeah they are a jump shooting team so for the celtics to win like they won their regular season game with a record 24 three-pointers they need to make they need to shoot well from the outside and that's a lot of that is horford uh like i said you know career high 11 of three-point attempts in that game um because he's the one that's gonna be open most often baines is gonna when he's in there they're gonna leave him alone out there he is you're gonna see him wide open on the perimeter when he ventures out you know Marcus Morris those guys like you know they're gonna to have to shoot well like and and hey they't don't, they don't have to do it every game they just gotta do it four out of seven but like that is I think that's where this, this series will be decided uh with, yeah. with how well Boston shoots from the perimeter.
1: Yeah, and I and I'll keep my eye on the the Kyrie Irving Eric Bledsoe matchup, which I think could be outstanding. You know, you yeah. got two dynamic point guards who could go at it nonstop throughout the series. Kyrie's looked really, really good, um, and we're not. You know how tough it is for me to give up love for for Kyrie after some of the stuff he's done this year. It's just, but I, I will give credit where it's due. Um, yeah the interesting
0: thing also like like i don't think milwaukee and at least in their starting lap doesn't have a liability where there were that they that irving can attack and pick and roll right like it's not like like mm-hmm. lopez is going to drop down so if they if they do play pick and roll with uh the guy that lopez is guarding you know then it's up to irving to make mid-range shots or yeah. or whatever but like there's not one you know the, the bucks will switch one through four fairly liberally there's not a a a guy in that one through four that they can say, all right, let's go at Middleton. No, he's a capable defender. Let's go at Ans Kumbo. No, they're not going to do that. Let's go at uh, Sterling Brown or Brogdon, whoever it is. So that's a, that's a that's a I think a, a, a good thing for the Bucks that they don't have somebody that Irving can really try to attack one on one.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's going, it's just like like, Miritich gets in there. That's right.
1: Right. But we've been pointing to it all season. We said that we've been talking about it for a while. now. The conference semifinals in the East could be as good as they've been, man, I'm trying to go back and think when's the last time we had four, potentially four teams as good as these four, as I think these four teams are.
0: I can remember three. Um, Cleveland, Boston, Orlando. Like yeah. those were in the I wanna say like the two thousand nine late yeah
1: years. Like that was three really, really good teams. Um did we have a year where it was them and and Detroit was still competitive? I can't remember. Uh well the last
0: time we know the last time the Pistons won a playoff game was so, two thousand eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They so it got swept been... by Cleveland in two thousand nine, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so, it might not. They might not
1: have had. We might not have had four that I can remember. Shoot. So, two, so
0: 2008, we had Detroit, Cleveland, and Boston. Obviously, yeah. but I don't think Orlando was that
1: good. That well, year. yeah, they weren't a stout. They weren't a stout. Um, like I said, just fact. I mean, just ridiculous matchups. We, you know, we've earned them a long NBA se- regular <laughs> season. We have, we have earned these sorts of playoff matchups. And everybody stay healthy. Yes, everybody. Show up healthy and in uniform, we should get everything we've been asking for. Bit of news, Shu, before we get out of here. Um, the Phoenix Suns, I'm, I don't even have words for them firing Igor Kokoskov after one season. And you wonder why you can't seem to get things straight out there. The the continued inconsistency of what they're doing in Phoenix is frightening for their young players in the development of, of those young players. <sighs> I'm, like I said, I'm not getting. it. I don't want to talk about it. I I just want to mention it. And make sure that, that we get it out there because it kind of came in a woes bomb. You know, late Monday night. But just I'll just say, like, what just kind ridiculous. of coach? Like, what kind of a coach do you
0: expect to get next? If 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 you keep yeah, like you're not going to get an in demand coach is not going to want to come to a place that with with such.
1: You know this, uh, which with such whatever. entropy. I like. I yeah. used the word last night. Entropy and That's Rex Chapman told me he had to look it up, um, <laughs> but it means disorder. It's just yeah. My my seventh grade science teacher used to use that word all the time. There is no order to what they're doing, and it it's frustrating as hell because this is a team that. Is repeatedly in the lottery, so that means they're acquiring this young talent that is not allowed to breathe, grow, and develop the way it should because the ecosystem they keep plopping this talent into is so dysfunctional.
0: Also, like for for players, when they have a say, they don't have a great rookie season. We say, well, you know what? You know, it really starts the second year. Like after you you get you get your taste of the league, and then you put in your work, you understand what you had to work on. In the summer, you put in your summer of work, and then let's see what kind of a player you are in year right. two. Should we be similarly patient with coaches, as far as okay? Yeah, I he wish got, he got his, yeah. his his taste of as a head coach. And obviously, he'd been an assistant, but he understood okay what it was to be a head coach, what it was to what this team obviously needed to do to 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 be better. Why can't he get a, a summer of work to, to really figure things out and then yeah. and, and see what kind of a coach he is in year two? Like, doesn't yeah, – I agree. I mean, I don't know anything about what's going on internally with that team, but it just seems silly to to cut ties with a,
1: a coach. Um, so
0: quickly. well enough to hire a
1: year ago right? Uh, whatever. I mean, just – I mean, it's frustrating. It is frustrating. Good luck to whoever – Is picking those pieces up in Phoenix, trying to get it right. Draft lotteries around the corner. This is a team that potentially could end up with the number one pick. You know, and and, and here they are again. You know, trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, in terms of how, what direction they're headed in with a with a head coach. We'll be back on Thursday uh, with another episode previewing the other conference semifinal matchups and uh, talking about what transpires over the next couple of days in the games that you'll be watching. Make sure you follow all of our playoff coverage on NBA TV and NBA.com. Be sure to subscribe to Hang Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. All season long, don't forget to leave a review. Shoot. Um, Enjoy the game tonight. Enjoy everything else you watch until we talk again. For uh, John Hartzell, our producer, this is Seku Smith, John Schumann, and we will see you right here next time on the Hang Time Podcast.